Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. You know what? Uh, I'm never going back. Uh, I'm never going back to a life that does not live and plunge the depths of God's marvelous love. I'm never going back to a life that does not recognize that the God I worship is holy, holy, holy. That the God, that the God I worship, that though the darkness in my life may sometimes try to hide him, yet his glory, yet I will see. I'm never going back to a life that's not, that does not embrace that crazy truth that although God sees my heart, and it ain't so pretty at times, yet he still extends his grace. Amen. I'll embrace that grace. Hey, I want to start off this morning with some words that Matthew, you know the guy who walked away from his tax collector booth, leaving it all behind to go on a quest to follow Jesus, after saying yes to his extravagant proposal, wrote in the 14th chapter of his gospel, just a, a brief devotional thought to launch us today. Uh, when Jesus heard what had happened, uh, John the Baptist had been murdered, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place to get alone, to be with his dad. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him one foot from the towns, and when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As the evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. All the restaurants are closing. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And then now put yourself in, in their sandals. You know, facing an impossible problem, right? And being given an overwhelming challenge. They reply, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Have you ever said the same thing when facing that kind of problem or circumstance? An overwhelming challenge? I, I only have. You know, I, I don't have much. And then Jesus said, uh, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me, he said. And, and that's the key, Right? See, the, the key is not what or how much you have, but whether or not you bring what you have to Jesus. See, some of you need to stop focusing on what's missing in your life, uh, what, what skills you don't have, what talents you cannot employ, what resources you cannot access, and start focusing on what you do have, and then bring that to Jesus. Amen? And directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples, the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. In other words, they pigged out and had to loosen their belt a notch or two. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, <clears throat> besides women and children. And again, I think what God wants to say to you, to me, to us, is that we need to flip the question from, what am I missing? But I only have, we need, we need to flip that to, what do I have that I'm not seeing? What do I have that I can take to Jesus and let him multiply it for me? 
You see, if you would only give Jesus what you have, then he will do what only he can do. Uh, this, this week when I read this, I, I felt Jesus telling me, Steve, stop telling me what you don't have. And give me what you got. Give me what I gave you. Uh, stop looking at your limitations and start seeing what I can do with what I've already given you to accomplish what I already called you to accomplish. See, Jesus, if he called you to something, he'll give you what you need. And if he didn't give it to you, then you don't need it in order to do what he called you to do. Get it? Good. Devotion over. Okay, I, I, I want to set up our conversation this morning pretty much as I always do with some words that are alive and active, sharp and penetrating, words that were literally breathed out by the God who breathes out stars, words that correct us when we're wrong, words that show us how to do what is right, words that will accomplish what God desires and achieve his purposes. Here are these God-breathed words, John 13. A new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. First John 3, this is how you know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech. That's easy, right? That accomplishes nothing other than make us feel warm and fuzzy inside, but with actions and in truth. Later on that letter, John, 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we'll not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. We live in love. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. Get out of here, fear. We love each other because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For, we don't love, for if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God, whom we cannot see? And he's giving us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have to get the prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I, I gain nothing. You see what he's saying? He's saying that without love, what you say, what you know, what you give, what you sacrifice, even your faith does not matter, means nothing, gains nothing, and we are nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. 
There was a common theme in there. I don't know if you caught it. It's the word love. It was used 42 times in the verses that I read. May God bless the reading of his inspired word. God, we love you. You loved us first. (laughs) You love us most. And God, you know each of us, where we've been, where we are. (laughs) You even know where we're going. So you know what to give us now so we'll be ready when we actually get there. And so, Father, I pray that you'll, you'll find us today alive and active to hear your word. I pray for open ears and open hearts. And, God, I pray that you enable me to speak and also to hear from you today. Holy Spirit, do your thing. God, I thank you that this time depends on you and your word and your truth, not on what I can try to throw on paper. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we go. Uh, Week seven of our first message series of the year 2017, getting better at what Jesus said matters most. And understand that these, these are the most important conversations that have ever happened in this room and that will ever happen in this room. Now, how can I make such a bold statement? Because Jesus said that nothing is more important in your life and in my life, or in his church, than getting better at loving God as we should, loving our neighbor as he intends, and loving ourselves as he commands. And here's the deal. There were dreams, there were thoughts and intentions. There was a life that God had in mind when he breathed life into your body, when he began forming you in your mother's womb, oneself from your mom, oneself from your dad, when he set up the canvas grabbed his brushes and paint and began to paint the masterpiece, the work of art that is the you he intends for you to be. Turn to the person to your right and left and tell them you are a masterpiece. And and, and then turn to them and say, I am a masterpiece. Amen. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that you really are a masterpiece and do you believe that there really is a life that God created you to live? And listen, it's a life of freedom, of joy, contentment, purpose, satisfaction, meaning, wholeness, and fulfillment. Question, anybody out there want to live that kind of life? <laughs> yeah, me too. And we don't have to raise our hands on this one. Anybody out there actually living it? Yeah, I hear you. And listen, if you're not really living it, you're not alone. Check out these words from a a guy named Dallas Willard, a really smart guy, in his book, Renovation of the Heart. When we open ourselves to the writings of the New Testament, when we absorb our minds and hearts in one of the Gospels, for example, or in the letters such as Ephesians or 1 Peter, the overwhelming impression that comes upon us is that we are looking into another world and another life. It's a divine world and a divine life. It is life in the kingdom of the heavens. Yet it's a world and a life that ordinary people have entered and are entering now. It's a world that seems open to us and beckons us to enter. We feel its call. The amazing promises to those who give their life to this new world through their confidence in Jesus leap out at us from the pages. For example, we read Jesus' own words that those who give themselves to him will receive a living water, the spirit of God himself, that will keep them from ever again being thirsty, being driven and ruled by unsatisfied desires. 
and that this water will become a well or spring of such waters gushing up to eternal life. Indeed, it will even become rivers of living water flowing from the center of the believer's life to a thirsty world. Or, or we read Paul's prayer that believers would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they may be filled all the fullness of God by the power at work within us that's able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. Or Peter's words about those who love and trust Jesus rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, with genuine mutual love pouring from their hearts, ridding themselves of all malice and all guile and sincerity, envy and all slander, silence and scoffers at the way of Christ by simply doing what is right and casting all their anxieties on God because he cares for them. The vision is clear, and no one open to it can mistake what it means. But while all is clear and desirable, we must admit that in many historical periods, as well as today, Christians generally only find their way into this divine life slowly and with great difficulty, if at all. End quote. Yes, many people miss out on the life God created them to live and the life that Jesus won for them on the cross. And listen, I'm convinced that getting better at what Jesus says matters most is actually the doorway to living that life, to becoming the person God wants you to be. Get it? Good. And Maple Grove, loving God is the is the top hinge. Loving yourself is the middle hinge. And loving your neighbor, it's the bottom hinge. I mean, what if I'm right about this, right? I think it's worthy of your attention, right? It's worthy to mull over a little bit. Now, for the first three weeks of the series, we talked about the middle hinge, the commandment of Jesus for you to love yourself. And in those weeks, we learned that to love yourself, to work that middle hinge that you must plunge the depths of the Father's love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure, right? And that we must push through insecurity. That we must accept that loving yourself is essential, not selfish. That you must sometimes go back in order to move forward. That you must use 1 Corinthians 13 as a template for loving yourself. And that you must accept God's approval as your validation. Six things that I want to be like an old Western six-shooter, right? So whenever you feel bad about yourself, you just pull out that six-shooter, right? And you shoot off a few rounds so you can love yourself the way God wants you to. And then we spent the last three weeks talking about the top hinge, getting better at loving God. And remember, God is worthy of your love because God is great, Canis Majoris, right? Need I say more, right? He breathes out stars. And God is good. He sent his son to die for you. And remember that going all in and loving him begins with accepting his proposal, with saying yes to having an intimate and personal relationship with the maker of the heavens and the earth. Are you kidding me? God wants to marry me. And you know what? I said it once, and I'll say it again. I said yes. I said yes. 
I say yes. And remember that going all in involves enjoying God's presence. Bottom line, you got to find ways to be around God so that you can get to know God, right? Uh, there's a new faith comes from hearing reading uh, this month. Start in there. We're reading Matthew and Psalms and some Proverbs. Going all in and loving him involves embracing his passions. God is passionate about you and your relationship with him. He's passionate about the church. He's passionate about the loss of the gospel. Are you passionate about those things? And finally, it involves engaging your personal pursuit. You see, saying yes to God changes everything, right? I mean, ask Matthew, ask Paul, Peter, James, Andrew, right? Ask these guys. They were never the same. And remember, following Jesus is a quest, not an adventure. And I know we would much rather it be an adventure. Uh, but saying yes to Jesus and following him, it's not an adventure. You see, an adventure is a there and back again. An adventure is where you, is an exciting thing that you choose where you have your adventure, you have your thrills, then you come back to life as it always was. You picked it up where you left off. Doing what you always done, living for what you always live for, until it's time for another adventure. A quest, on the other hand, is something you don't come back from. You see, you either die for the sake of the quest, or if you do come back, you're so changed that in a sense you really do not come back. See, in a quest, you and your agenda, like the Apostle Paul, are crucified with Christ and no longer live. And I get it. A quest can be a scary thing, right? Because we want to follow Jesus. Hey, can I follow you, Jesus, and keep all this stuff? <laughs> and can I bring my suitcases with me? No. I showed up to boot camp with a bunch of stuff, and I couldn't take any of it. My radio, books, and stuff. <laughs> I thought, oh, you can't take that with you, right? It's a quest, Right? And engaging this quest, one of the ways to do that is these spiritual practices, right? That people practice for centuries. And these create space. And they put you in a place where God can do what only he can do. Only God can change you. You can't change yourself, right? But you can put yourself in those places. Practices like prayer, fasting, reading God's word, meditation, service, slowing down solitude, giving of our resources, obedience, which, as I said last week, is God's love language. If you love me, you will buy a T-shirt, lift your hands in worship, say amen, shout hallelujah. No. You'll what? You'll obey, right? You'll obey. Those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we are living in him. And so we spent the last three weeks, right, talking about the top hinge, and the weeks before that talking about the middle hinge, about getting better at loving God and getting better at loving yourself. And are you getting better, right? Not perfect. Are you getting better? I mean, we should wake up every day, right? God, how can I get a little bit better today at loving you? And God, how can I get better at loving myself so that if I start feeling bad at me, I pull out my trusty six-shooter, right? And I push those bad thoughts about myself away. Well, today we're going to talk about the bottom end, getting better at loving your neighbor, and listen, here's the deal. I'm convinced that the better you get at loving yourself and loving God, loving your neighbor will pretty much just be natural, kind of like an automatic result. I understand that the more and more of God's love you pour into your life, and the more and more of your love for God you pour into your life, love for your neighbor will just begin to flow right on out of you. So Jesus said, that one of the most important things in your life is getting better at loving your neighbor. 
So I guess the question is, who is my neighbor? You know, someone asked Jesus that very question 2,000 years ago. It's in Luke chapter 10. One occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question, right? Eternal life, big deal. I want it. <laughs> and I understand Jesus, he's crazy smart. And he knows that this lawyer would much rather talk than listen. So he invites this lawyer hey, to give his own professional interpretation of the law. After all, the law is his field of expertise. Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. I mean, this guy's answer, it's spot on. I mean, it's the same answer that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew 22 as what the most important commandment is. But listen, Jesus doesn't stop there and applaud this guy because he knew the right answer to the quiz in the classroom. Because knowing is simply not enough. Even G.I. Joe knows this. Growing up, I remember G.I. Joe telling me this all the time, right? My first dial was a G.I. Joe dial. Knowing is what? It's half the battle, right? Half the battle. Half the battle don't mean no victory. And, and see, the truth is that we, like the lawyer in Luke 10, we know a lot of correct answers to some biblical questions, don't we? Like, okay, true or false? Answer in your head. You should forgive those who hurt you or... No, you picked the right answer. It's not really true or false, okay? Should you forgive those who hurt you or should you hold on to resentment and bitterness? Bitterness. You answered that one, okay? In your heads. Yeah, I totally blew that true or false thing, okay? Question number two, should you share the gospel with lost people or should you not share it? Should you use your tongue to gossip, slander, and tear people down or to build people up? What's the answer? Uh, when you have a problem with someone, should you go to them privately? Or should you tell a bunch of other people what nasty people they are and how bad they treated you and never go to the person who hurt you in the first place? Should intimacy be reserved for the marriage relationship between a husband and wife or should it be, hey, just go for it, all right? Should you give your 10% to the church or should you only give what's left over after you do all the stuff that you want to do with your money? Okay? Now, I think in the classroom, right, most of us, right, would do well in that quiz, right? But understand, how are we doing with those answers outside the classroom? I understand, Jesus wants more from you than correct answers. He wants a correct life. Get it? Good. So Jesus says to the lawyer and to us, do this and you will live. In other words, your answer is excellent, but your outward behavior needs some improvement. You know the right thing to do, now just do it. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Now, now do you see what this guy's doing? This is in your notes. He's trying to narrow the definition of who, the, who his neighbor is so that it fits nice and neatly around those he already loves or would be willing to love. You see, if he can narrow the definition of neighbor down just enough, right, 
then he can claim that he loves his neighbor. And listen, before we go all self-righteous on this lawyer, I'm not so sure that we're all that different. Who's my neighbor? Well, surely there are those who look like me, who think like me, act like me, believe like me, vote like me, root for the same team as me, right? Surely that's my neighbor. I understand like this lawyer, Luke 10, we're not only tempted, but we often do define our neighbor in a way that fits into something we're already doing or we're willing to do. Or even worse, we overgeneralize and say, you know what, everybody's my neighbor. Listen, when you make everybody your neighbor, nobody's your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love with God's kind of love? The all-important question. So Jesus tells a little story to help us understand who our neighbor is and and how it looks like to actually love them. In reply, Jesus said, and that word reply is kind of interesting, it means to take up the debate. In other words, this lawyer threw down a gauntlet, right? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, all right, you threw it down. I'm ready to pick this thing up and teach you something about what it looks like to love your neighbor. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, now this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious and very dangerous. Robbers loved it because there were lots of curves and caves and cliffs to hide in. It was nicknamed the Pass of Blood. So no one was surprised to hear about a story of a guy being brutalized there and abandoned. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Now understand, these religious leaders who believed that they had the corner on the market with God and who repeated the Shema several times a day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, He and He alone. Love the Lord your God. They ignored the need that was right in front of them. Now why did Jesus choose a priest and a Levite to illustrate this story? Um, one author I read this week said this, By doing this, Jesus laid a critical foundation for good neighboring. Jesus came to move us out of a place of religious complexity and into a place of relational simplicity, right? Aren't we good at complicating things? You know, making it really hard, invention programs. Jesus said, hey, you know what? Love me and love my kids, right? He said, that's it. Well, yeah, what? He just said, no, let's keep it. Let's not make it complicated. We don't need flow charts and all that all the time. Hey, love me and love other people, right? And listen, it's not enough to have right thinking or correct theology. If you're going to love God, then you must express that love and how you love other people. Now, it might be easy to look at this priest and Levite and want to give them a hard time, but they're probably asking a question we often ask ourselves when faced with similar situations, especially inconvenient or messy ones. What is going to happen to me if I stop and help, if I get involved. Ever ask that question? You see, the truth is we constantly, almost subconsciously, evaluate situations based on how it will impact us. How's this going to impact my time? How's it going to impact my money? Is this going to be a little bit too uncomfortable or inconvenient for me? They do look kind of bloody and messy. Yeah, and there were risks involved, right, for these guys in Luke 10. 
it's not a safe road. They could have been mugged. Not to mention these religious guys could have been disqualified late or even missed an important meeting at the temple. And really, that's the point. When we love others, there's always an amount of risk, discomfort, and inconvenience involved. So two people passed by the wounded man, but the good news is Jesus did not leave him there bleeding on the side of the road. There's a hero in the story, and there's also a plot twist. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, and notice the Levite and the priest also saw him, but the Samaritan saw him differently. And he took pity on him, and he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for the extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Samaritan. A, a, a person with the wrong religion, living on the wrong side of the tracks, who was hated by the Jews, ended up being the one who actually loved his neighbor as God commanded. And in fact, Jesus said through this parable, you know who I think has this love God, love your neighbor thing down? It's this guy that you think's on the outside looking in. It's this Samaritan guy who actually embodies more of what it means to allow the love and grace of God to flow in and through him. You see, loving your neighbor isn't about religion, it's about compassion. And so the hero is the guy who saw and who stepped towards and did something. And that's the invitation that each of us are hearing from God today, to get outside of our comfort zone. Of simply loving those who are like us, loving those who will be easy inconvenient and not hard and not difficult and travel into the compassion zone, right? Leave the comfort zone, go into the compassion zone and actually get off our donkey and do something good, not just think something good. See, thinking like knowing, it's not enough. Get it? Good. The comedian Louis C.K. once admitted, every time I see a soldier on the plane, I, I think I should give up my seat to him. I never have. Never done it once, or even seriously came close, but I still enjoyed the fantasy. I was actually proud of myself for having thought of it. We do that all the time, don't we? We give ourselves credit for thinking nice thoughts, for having compassion in our hearts, in our minds, but that never actually leaves our body and helps anybody out. Louise Steverberg wrote, the full embodiment definition of the word love in Hebrew teaches us that loving others must include action, not just mental feelings. We cannot fully obey God's command to love our neighbors by just thinking nice things about them. To love them encompasses getting off our chair or donkey and showing them God's love by helping them in any way that we can. Question, who is your neighbor? Anyone who's within your circle of influence, anyone who's within reach of your eyes and, and reach of your hands that you can love and show compassion to. And yes, like Luke chapter 10, loving your neighbor can be both risky and messy. And more times than not, it will not be easy, comfortable, or convenient. And in fact, it could get quite costly. But God's love for you did not come cheap either, did it? 
Now, here's the deal. In order to live the life God intended, you must get better at loving your neighbor. And that is what we'll be unpacking the next several weeks. And listen, my goal is to move this command of Jesus to love your neighbor from the abstract and overgeneralized to the practical and real. In a series of conversations I'm going to be calling Love Where You Are. And listen, there is always a place that you are, right? Just think about all the places that you are in any course, course of any day, week, or year. I mean, sometimes you are at work. You are at home. You are at school, at the store, at church, in a restaurant, on vacation, sitting on a plane, standing in line at, at, at food line, standing on the sidelines of a soccer field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I want to do for the next several weeks is to talk about four neighborhood relationships. That if you get better at them, will have a major impact not only in your life, but also for the advancement of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. Paper Grove, it's time for you to love where you are. And in our brief time remaining today, we're going to talk about love where you are, your family. Next week, we're going to talk about love where you are, your work, or your school. And then for three weeks, leading up to Easter, we're going to talk about love where you are, your neighborhood. Go figure. We're supposed to love the people that actually live near us. I can't wait to do that one because I I need to repent and get, get on with it. God has commanded you to love where you are. And one place that you most definitely are is in your home. Question, who is in your family who lives with you that you can love? And remember, here's that definition of love, right? Just keep that in mind when I talk about this, right? It's patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not proud, does not dishonor, not self-seeking, not easily angered, no record of wrongs. Keep that definition in mind. Now, I think we all would agree, right, that some of the most difficult people to love can be the ones closest to us. Yes, some of the toughest people to love are in our own family. Got any? Why? Because they know everything about you, know everything about them, and you can't get away from them, right? They're always there when you go home, or they keep showing up on holidays, right? But what if in 2017, you got a little better at loving your family members, the way God wants you to, the way 1 Corinthians 13 describes? Do you think that would be a good thing? Do you think that would change some homes? Would it change some families? Would it change some relationships? And do you think those changes could possibly leak out a little bit into the world. Jesus commanded you to love your neighbor. And those you live with, your family, are your neighbors. Hate to break the news to you. Now surely God would not be okay with you. Hey, you know what? I I love those people on the other side of the world. (laughs) But yet not love the people in your own family. Be like, seriously? I'm glad you love them, but I think you missed the boat. This sucker's supposed to start in Jerusalem, then Judea, right? Now, some of us, I know we hear, hear that, we hear, love where you are, love your family, those you live with, and your extended family. We immediately go to, but you don't know my dad, he's a jerk. Or my mom, my stepdad, you, you don't know my brother, you don't know my sister, you don't know my kids, you don't know that crazy uncle. You don't know that hateful ex-spouse. You don't know my in-laws. I mean, they are more like outlaws. 
Okay? I'm not saying it's easy. But listen, here's something you need to keep in mind when it comes to loving difficult family members. Got any? And it's this. God doesn't love you because you're easy to love. He loves you because you need to be loved. And so, you know, as a result of this incredible love from the Father, I see my role in his plan. It's kind of like this funnel. I think our lives are just to be something that that God's love flows through. And as God pours his love into me and into you, because we need that love, we pour that love, we let that love flow into other people, because guess what? They need that love too. Love where you are. Love your family. Those you live with, and that extended family who's showing up maybe this summer or Christmas or Thanksgiving. Love is patient, kind. It's not envy. Okay, let's make this real. What are some ways that you can this week and beyond pour God's kind of love into the lives of those you live with and your extended family? And listen, you be the initiator. You be the initiator. You take the lead. You be like Jesus. I mean, come on. Let's quit waiting for everybody else to be like Jesus, right? Let's quit waiting for them to get their act together, right? Hey, you be kind to me, then I'll be kind to you, right? You forgive me, then I'll forgive you. You be like Jesus. You, as Dr. Phil would say, you be the hero, right? In some of your relationship, you know, there needs to be a hero. Well, you be that hero. And think about what are some ways in the coming weeks, this week and beyond, those you live with and beyond, how can you be patient with somebody or show kindness? Is there somebody in your family you need to ask forgiveness of or you just need to forgive and get over it? Let it go, let it go. It ain't helping you no more, right? Just let it go. Just let the stinking thing go. My goodness, my goodness, we are so dumb at times. You like to suck on bitterness like it's a candy. It's not. It's toxic. You need to love where you are. And that starts with your family. It won't be easy. It could be messy. But I can guarantee that God will honor your efforts, right? And when you refuse to love your family, it's like your fist is clenched. And God cannot bless you when your hand remains clenched just can't his hand cannot bless you when your fish is clenched no i'm not gonna do it i mean just imagine what would happen if you forget about your wife your kid if you got better at loving your family you're more patient more forgiving more kind i think it'd be pretty sweet don't you i think god would smile well, do we need a program for this, Pastor Steve? Think we should have a meeting? We overcomplicate things, right? We know what love is, just do it. Now, as we wrap up, I just want to remind you that as Jesus followers, we have not one family, but two, right? We, we have our biological family, 
we live with, our extended family, and we have our church family. What would happen? What would happen if you got better at loving your church family? And if you got better at loving your church family? You know what? I think I'll let Jesus answer that. New commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this. A new commandment I give you. That you are to love one another just as I love you. Wow. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Remember, God's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's not talking to you about your neighbor. Right? He's not talking to me about you. Man, if this sucker over here would just get this. He's talking to you about you. And remember, God's God doesn't love you because you're easy to love. He loves you because you need to be loved. And listen, there's people in our church, family, that need God's love. And they need you to be the one to pour it into it. And you know that definition, right? It fits for this family too. There's someone in here you need to be more patient with. More kind to? I mean, when you walk into church, is it always, are you self-seeking? Right? Wow, this isn't what I wanted. Why is it not, are you self-seeking? Well, no one's talking to me. No one said nothing. Are you, are you self-seeking? Are you holding on to a grudge against somebody in here? Sinning against God, jeopardizing your very own salvation because you love bitterness so much? Who do you need to love this week with God's kind of love? And you be the initiator. And God is saying to me, right? Steve, you be the initiator. You take the lead. You know, you be selfless. You be forgiving. You be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You take the lead. You be like Jesus, God has called us to love where we are and to love your family. And I guarantee you, when we get better loving God, we get better loving ourselves, and we get better at loving our neighbors, we will get better. And don't you want to get better, church? Would you stand and pray? Father, Your love is just ridiculous. We don't deserve it. We don't understand it. But oh, how much we need it. And so God, we pray and we thank you for your patience with us. And God, I pray that today we are not hearers only of your word. I pray that we will each individually be initiators of your word. And we will find ways to love our neighbor, to love our family, those we live with and our extended family. Not, not with just thoughts, but with words and deeds and action. 
And God, that we would love each other in this church family so that the world will know that there's something different here, that we actually love each other. And God, I pray that each of us repent of what we need to repent of before you to make our homes, our lives, and this family a place where your love reigns. In Jesus' name, amen.